0: Welcome to another episode of "Have You Got That Right?" The podcast of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. I'm your host, Maria Smith, manager of the Caston Centre,
1: and I'm Paula Gerber, a deputy director of the Caston Centre, and I'm Melissa Caston, the other person here. <laughs> uh, sorry,
0: <laughs> you did that last time, and I did not even realise that you'd said that until I was editing it afterwards. <laughs> and uh, it was quite funny. Um, It's great to be back in the podcast hangar here at Sunny Clayton after a fairly big break. Uh, As a tiny organisation, we sometimes are stretched beyond our capacity, and uh, this has been one of our times, but we are back. Good
2: times, Marius. They have been good times. We
0: have a really good uh, schedule of podcasts running through till the end of the year now. Uh, One housekeeping note, uh, our upcoming biennial dinner is on the 23rd of November. Um, That's been keeping us particularly busy. And if you're in Melbourne, we'd love to see you there. We've already sold over 200 tickets, and we expect to see 300 plus people on the night. Uh, the formalities will be short but excellent. With Best David, way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> with David Marr speaking on marriage equality, and everyone in the human rights community will be there. Uh, so you can find the details on our website.
2: And I'll be
1: there. <laughs> Me too. Yay. <laughs>
0: Um, today, it's the Marriage Equality Bumper Edition, where we're going to take a step back and answer every question you've ever had on marriage equality. Big call. Cool. <laughs> then we'll t- tackle some of the other human rights news at the moment. And of course, we'll finish off with our human rights hero or villain of the week. And did you see that, where we each bring up one thing that's caught our attention recently, human rights or otherwise. One more thing before we dive in, Uh, we would usually have a community partner that we ask you to support as part of the podcast, but this time around, we're going to ask you to support the Marriage Equality Campaign, and if you're an Australian citizen, get your vote in, Uh, and I'll give you some remaining key dates for the survey a bit later in the episode. So, uh, marriage equality is the hot topic here in Australia at the moment. As most people would know, we have a voluntary... Postal survey underway in this country to determine whether the people who respond to the survey believe that we should have marriage equality. I want to start. Well,
2: that, that's really weird.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is really weird, and we'll dive into that. But I want to pull back before we get to Australia and start by asking you, Paula, what's the status of marriage equality around the globe? If we legalise marriage equality, where do we sit in the kind of global pecking order?
1: good question and things are moving so fast it's almost difficult to keep up. I can't give you the exact number now of uh, the countries where it is legal for same-sex couples to marry. Germany was the most recent addition. Austrian, The Austrian court last night or the night before uh, said that they think allowing uh, same-sex couples only domestic partnership uh, registration and not marriage is uh, not okay, even if Legally, in every respect, the two are identical. So Mm. that's the court saying the very word marriage has a significance, has meaning, Mm. conveys a certain uh, legitimacy to the relationship. So this idea of separate but equal is not going to be tolerated in Austria, Mm. and it shouldn't be tolerated anywhere else. There have been assertions that Australia is the only English-speaking country in the world not to have... Uh, legalised marriage equality um, and as usual that's a, a question of interpretation. Mm-hmm. So someone came and said well Singapore's an mm. English speaking mm. country and not only is it not legalised it still mm. criminalises mm. homosexual conduct. So uh, we've got to be careful with those generalisations mm. but you can certainly say with great authority and certainty that we are rapidly becoming a minority amongst women mm. um, uh, Developed Western countries mm. in not allowing uh, anyone who is in love and wants to make a commitment to the person they love for the rest of their lives till death do us part mm. uh, to marry. Well,
2: Paula, what about uh, like our common law cousins, like you know, Britain, New Zealand, Canada, Canada, uh,
1: all of those long ago uh, legalized marriage equality. But wait, did the world fall in? Uh, the sky fell down, yeah. didn't you notice? Yeah, I thought,
2: well, yeah. kind of did actually, but not because of that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, what we with this, there's now lots of empirical evidence mm-hmm. that all the fear-mongering uh, that uh, the no-campaigners have been throwing about in the last few weeks in Australia, uh, it's hurtful, it's painful, but uh, it's untrue. So, okay. these things that they're all talking about don't happen when two people are the same are allowed to marry.
0: Um, We're going to get on to a little bit about that, sort of the the nastiness of this campaign in a moment. But you mentioned the courts are increasingly finding that this is an issue of non-discrimination and effectively of human rights. What's the... As a human rights centre, I want to start with the human rights question, Paula. Is there a human right to marriage equality?
1: Again, (laughs) a a very short and simple question that doesn't have a short and simple answer. in international human rights law, the only precedent we have is the Jocelyn decision from the UN Human Rights Committee in 2001, so mm. 16 years ago, when the only country that had legalised marriage for same-sex couples was the Netherlands. Mm. New Zealand, a couple of in New Zealand same-sex couples challenged that uh, the marriage was not a privileged heterosexual institution that should be open to all Couples, regardless of their gender and sexual orientation, and the UN Human Rights Committee said no. Mm. Now, I think, and I've analysed that decision inside and out, <laughs> uh, I think it's right for. Uh, reinterpretation and, mm. and international human rights laws are living creatures that need to be interpreted in light of mm. contemporary values and, and uh, whatnot. So it would be interesting but risky to take mm. another test case to the UN mm. um, but there's some indications that they might be receptive to that. For example in the case recently of Sea uh, and Australia, it was held that Australia was in breach of Uh, international human rights law by not allowing a same-sex couple who were married in Canada to get divorced in Australia. Um, they said that breached their human rights mm. to force them to remain married, and they couldn't get divorced in Canada because there was a residency requirement that they couldn't meet. Right. So for ten years, this couple that have separated uh, remained married to each other, and right. the UN said that's a breach of human rights because
2: they're stuck in a kind of legal limbo. Really. E-
1: exactly. They can't remarry or mm. repartner even if you, they want to do a civil partnership. They can't because you've got to be single. Mm. Um, it's tricky when they travel internationally. That you know, if she was to get sick in. America Mm -hmm. or Canada, uh, her next of kin would be her wife. Mm. Problematic. Very, very problematic. And so, you know, when decisions like that come out of the UN, it does give um, one cause for optimism. But if we look at the jurisprudence out of the European court, it's less favourable in terms of is there a human right to marriage? And they often say it's up to each country to decide when and where they're ready. Well, most European countries are deciding that Mm -hmm. they're that they're ready. So, um, I don't think we can, at this say stage, say unequivocally, yes, there is a human right for same-sex couples to marry. That has been determined by an authoritative body. But my interpretation mm. um, is that yes, the right to marry is non-discriminatory and should apply to all.
0: And just very briefly, um, part of the difference from a, just a legal point of view, without getting too technical, is that the 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 Jocelyn decision was based on the right to marry, which is in the uh, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, whereas I think people are now looking at this more of a matter of discrimination and therefore looking at a completely different part of the covenant.
1: Yes, unfortunately, Article 23 is the only provision in the ICCPR that refers uh, to men and women. So men and women have the right to marry. All other um, articles talk about all people or persons, everyone, etc. And so the opponents say, uh, look clearly, it's only meant to be a man and woman because of this drafting. Now I've analysed that, and I don't, and I've looked at the drafting records, and I don't think that's what they intended at all at the time. Um, but now, yes, there are other provisions, not only in the ICCPR, such as the Articles 2 and 26 about non-discrimination, but also uh, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. A lot of same-sex couples have young children. Is it discriminatory against the child to not allow their mm. parents to marry based on their sexual orientation? You can also look at Article 10 of, of ISESCA, the right to found a family. Um, again, that should be interpreted and applied in a non-discriminatory way. Mm.
0: Um Okay, so to leave it there and move back to Australia, Um, as most Australians know by now, we're having a non-binding voluntary postal vote, which just comes across as a weird, perverted version of democracy. Hang
1: on. I think there's a few people living under a rock that don't know
0: that yet. I thought that all crawled out in recent weeks. Um, Melissa, some people um, in the past talked about holding a referendum. Then we're going to have a plebiscite. Now this weird thing. Um, Can you just explain really briefly what this vote is and isn't?
2: Well, I think the way the government's constructed this is it's a it's a survey about a statistical analysis of opinions on the issue. Um, you know, a referendum is a a vote to change the constitution. That's a formal process and a, a technical process. A plebiscite is something less than binding, but this doesn't really qualify as that either. So a lot of the early discussion when that when the the thing, the plebiscite survey or. <coughs> Voter site was announced. Was you know what it, politicians were calling it a plebiscite, but it really wasn't. It's actually a survey. Mm. It's a it's an unusual type of survey for us. We you know we we're not used to this kind of a survey. We're used to a census type of survey or your you know your poll on a op- opinion poll type of survey. Mm. This is you know a, a national survey conducted by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, not the Australian Electoral Commission. Um, and you know it, it's an anomaly.
1: It, And it's also an anomaly, I'd say, in that we're asking the majority to vote on whether the minority have a particular human right. Yeah, it's an
2: unusual way to ascertain human rights, isn't it?
1: It is. And I think if, you know, I often ask people to think about if the question was a bit different, if it was instead of uh, two people of the same sex, uh, should they be allowed to marry, if we change it to two people of... The different race, mm. should they be allowed to marry, or should a person with a disability be allowed to marry a person with a, it uh, doesn't have a disability? Mm. You know, these are all minority groups, but for some reason we think it's okay to sing- single out sexual and gender minorities and vote on their human Look, rights. Look,
2: I don't think it is right to single out anyone for this kind of, you know, right according rights by vote. Mm. That's not the way we usually do it, and I think, uh, I think a lot of people recognise that this has evolved out of a political process and a political, you know, backroom deal that was done by the government for various in-house concerns that they had. And so because of some politics that were going on in you know, in backrooms in Canberra, we've ended up with a with a vote on something that is incredibly inherently biased against the people that we're voting about.
1: And a lot of people point to Ireland, that Ireland did this and the sky didn't fall mm. in. But Ireland was quite a different situation, that the only way they could amend their law was to have a referendum. Yes. Whereas here, there is no imperative for us to have any sort of survey, vote, opinion, mm. poll, whatever you want to call it, because the Marriage Act can be amended by simple Bill through Parliament, exactly as John Howard did in 2004 when he changed it from being gender neutral to being defining marriages between a man and a woman.
0: It's kind of almost Asian history now, but just very briefly, this this vote was challenged in the courts. Um, And like often in constitutional law, because we don't have any protections in the Constitution against discrimination or for human rights... Uh, the challenge was basically on how the government spends its money and whether it had mm. the right to, uh, to pass the right bill. Um, mm. It was all extremely dry, <laughs>
2: and it seems like ancient history because it was all of what two or three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, well, once
0: you lose, you just move on, right? Yeah. But is there anything sort of in particular you wanted to point out from from that case? Look, was it?
2: there were <laughs> there was you know strong hopes before the case was decided that there were grounds to to set this vote aside for being either unconstitutional or, or not within the bounds of Parliament's you know, capacities. Um, and there were three main arguments that the, the court case seemed to centre on and that was the ability of the plaintiffs to actually challenge the decision and that's something we call standing, that's your ability to argue the case. Um, and as you say, MRS, the validity of the funding of the Australian Bureau of Statistics to conduct the, the survey. So that goes to the issue of can a government appropriate $122 million to carry out a whopping big survey. Um, and there was another sort of statutory interpretation angle to it, which was did carrying out this survey amount to gathering of statistics? And that goes to a quite legalistic issue about the Census Act, which only allows the ABS to do things that are collating statistics, so is getting an opinion poll part of statistics. Um, And in response to those three main arguments, the standing issue didn't really seem to get clearly resolved. The appropriation issue was decided in favour of the government, so once Parliament has approved of an Appropriation Act, the court won't look behind that Act to see whether they're spending it in one way or another. Now, Parliament does have to approve spending, but if it's been approved, that's that. Um, and the statistics, well, they they more or less accepted that, this, that the um, carrying out of this type of opinion poll was close enough to s- statistics. So, yeah, a loss in the court, but everyone's turned straight away to, OK, running a campaign. And, mm. and, it, and it's an interesting campaign because mo- mostly when Australians vote, it's compulsory to vote. So everyone just gets out and votes. And we have traditionally a really high response rate, like a 98 or something percent, you know, participation rate, which is very, um, it's usually in Australia, it's unusual looking at uh, jurisdictions where they don't have compulsory voting. So I think now the ABS has released some recent statistics that suggested that I think there's been like a 68% response rate or something, and we're not yet at the end. So that's actually considered quite high for a voluntary um, survey, Mm. generally, and I think it goes to the issue that Australians are pretty conditioned to respond when asked to vote. Yeah,
0: that's a good point. Um. Br- briefly, what's next? Let if Melissa, if we win, is mar- marriage equality legalised the next day? Yeah,
2: yay. I'm going to get gay married. <laughs> um, No. Uh, it goes back to
1: Parliament. Parliament's going to,
2: theoretically, unless they've said they have, are going to
1: hold a vote on it. Potentially a very dangerous precedent has been set. Whenever, you know, a political party can't decide for itself what it should do, are we then going to have these $122 million surveys as a delay tactic or cop-out for yeah. the politicians actually doing their job and making a decision?
0: I think that that's a really good – leads us into the next point that I want to ask about the legacy of this. So that's one aspect of it that maybe uh, we've given politicians a new way to weasel out of making hard decisions – uh, but I also wanted to ask you, Paula, more generally about what is the legacy about this vote? When we've seen, you know, a, a bruising battle to this point in time, it's exposed a lot of kind of prejudice and ill will.
1: Yes, I always think we're going to need some sort of, you know, reconciliation uh, commission or something to try and heal society because the damage that has been done uh, through this this uh, process should not be underestimated. Mm. The LGBTI community is feeling. Very judged, very wounded, under siege, under siege and attacked from mm. from all fronts, mm. and um, it's been very hurtful. There have been some positives that have come out of it. A lot of the community members have talked about the fact that they've reached out to the community mm. more than they have in the past. But the you know the spike in calls to um, uh, Places like Beyond Blue mm. and and other um, helplines uh, help has really been significant, mm. and mm. people are feeling, um, yeah, very very wounded, very mm. vulnerable. So it's going to take a long time to feel again that um, we can trust mm. uh, our fellow Australians yeah. not to uh, uh, to judge us in this way, mm. and treat us in this way.
0: Yeah, I th- and I think it's worth just. Focusing for a moment, Paula, on particularly uh, the effect that this might have had on kids.
1: Um, very much so. Children. Um, and this was something I was going to mention later, but I'll throw it in now. The big no that was written in the sky was done at lunchtime last week, Mm. and my children saw it at school.
0: Mm. Yeah, my kids saw it,
1: and it was a point of discussion. Mm. And, but you know, trying to find the silver lining out of everything, it prompted me to um, uh, talk to the school principal and to say, you need to put something in the newsletter to parents about not how they should vote, but about the need to be respectful Mm. and supportive of LGBTI students and staff and rainbow families at the school. And I'd made that request several weeks earlier and I hadn't received a response and I followed up and I said, you know you've got rainbow families at the school. Mm-hmm. You know what happened last week. Silence is not an option. Mm-hmm. And these people who say, you know, we're not putting up posters in our shop because we don't take political Sides. positions, it, you know, I, I think it's just a cop-out. Mm-hmm. And to, I was very pleased to see that the principal at my children's school wrote a very lovely message in the newsletter mm-hmm. um, about the need to to be supportive and uh, respectful of, of everyone at all times,
2: and I think that that's going to continue, as you say. You know, even, no matter what the outcome of the survey is, you know, there's going to have to be that kind of action by people in positions of leadership, either you know, community leadership, schools, you know, councils, whatever it is. Yeah. Um. Because whatever the outcome, the effect on, particularly younger people who who don't have the maturity really to kind of deal with the complexity of the issue It's going to keep going on. It's not just a six-week thing or an eight-week thing. It's actually now we're in it, and it, it's going to take a long time to yes. kind of recoup a little bit of kind of equilibrium with with what people's expectations are or what's, what's okay discourse.
1: And hopefully if we do get, uh, you know, marriage equality – sooner rather than later, that will be a big part of the healing process. But, you know, the the no campaigners aren't going to go away. We're mm-hmm. then going to be having uh, lengthy arguments about religious exemptions. Mm-hmm. Does a baker have to make a cake for mm-hmm. a same-sex wedding? You know, it's it, the issue, I think, is going to continue to consume um, certain sectors of, mm-hmm. of Australian society um, for a long time to come.
0: And that's worth... Um, it's worth focusing on that for just a second because the bill has to be passed and that's where... There's going to be discussion about who gets exempted from
1: what. Yes, and you know, and this is more really hard conversation. So, in order to, to come up with a bill that uh, is going to be acceptable to the Liberal Party, Dean Smith, Senator from WA, Liberal Senator from WA, has produced a bill that includes that civil marriage celebrants can refuse to marry a same-sex mm. couple. Now, to my mind, that's ridiculous. Mm. If they're not doing it on religious grounds they should not be allowed to discriminate. Is the LGBTI community going to have the the strength to continue battling over mm. the, the, the then precise wording of the language? Because mm. this has taken a huge toll out of everyone in the LGBTI mm. community. And the other thing that I find very difficult is I went to an event uh, last night on LGBTI refugees. Mm. And, you know, the way they are being treated uh, on Nauru, on Manus Mm. Island is appalling, but it's getting no attention because we're all consumed Mm. with marriage equality in Australia. So other really important issues for LGBTI people, Mm. adoption, transgender people's access to health care and and medication, none of it's getting talked about Mm. at the moment.
0: On that sort of that very issue of the the breadth of people, I want to read this quote out from the head of um, transgender Victoria Sally Goldner, who's just been a fantastic advocate for trans rights. Um, she she was quoted as saying, "It honestly sometimes feels like a war zone. We're really having to dig into our reserves. These groups are trying to say that it's a decision to be trans and acting like we don't know anything about our own lives." And that resonated for me because if you see the ads on television that the No campaign are running. They they know they've lost on the issue of gay rights. That's just done. They can't they even know that running an argument on the sanctity of marriage has no cut through. So they've gone to the next level, the softer target, you mm. might say. And so they talk about gender fluidity and radical LGBTI mm. sex education, whatever that means. Yeah, that our kids so are gonna be exposed yeah, to Yeah, education
2: it. in schools and yeah. you know, what children what being wearing dresses yeah, <laughs> inappropriately
0: yeah and so it's tr- it's homophobia but it's also really transphobia yeah. they're really they're really tapping into that as their kind of last potential argument to make to get people out to vote no and that really is uh it's it's highly upsetting and uh, you know really thinking particularly you know all the lgbti community but especially trans people at the moment because mm. they're being used
1: as the wedge exactly exactly and it's it, You've nailed it. It's they've lost the the bigger picture issue. In, they think they uh, and we hope uh, that the the high vote or survey completion rate is means that the yes campaign will will be ultimately successful. So now let's try and distract mm. and get our message across in this climate when people are uh, wanting to just talk about these issues. And we'll talk about safe schools and we'll talk about uh, you know gender dysphoria and transgender kids and things like that, with no sense that, you know, they are throwing these children under the bus, mm-hmm. basically. There's no concept that this is harming, or no care, at least, mm-hmm. even if they know, about the harm that they are doing to these to these children. And I just hope that the, uh, you know, LGBTI community can, um, you know, love and support these kids enough to protect them from the harm that mm-hmm. seeing these ads on TV, for example... Mm-hmm. Um, is doing
0: yeah okay on we- that note <clears throat> that sobering note uh lift it up again by saying hopefully this will all end out well and we will start the process of national heal- healing but i want to end by just mentioning the key dates that are remaining for the marriage equality survey so on the 27th is the last day that, that um the abs recommends you put the form in the post Um, Young people, those are the red boxes on street corners that you always thought were street art. (laughs) And they've recommended that date because they will only count forms that they receive electronically or in the mail at their premises by the 7th of November.
2: (laughs) <laughs> Australia Post has had some kind of a breakdown this week,
0: oh, as yeah. it is. Oh, yeah, well, Australia Post groaning at the best of times at the moment. The 15th of November is when the result will be known, and the 23rd of November is when we will su- celebrate a successful yes vote at the Caston Centre's biennial de- dinner featuring David as keynote speaker. Oh,
2: stealth advertising, Marius.
0: Yeah. All right, on to human rights uh, news of the week, and it's been a pretty busy uh, week or so on human rights issues um, so we've got quite a lot to get through today, but one housekeeping note, we are recording this podcast at 11am on Wednesday the 18th of October, so things may have changed oh, by the time you listen. Oh, that's an Australian
2: Eastern Standard Daylight Time, isn't oh, it? Oh yes, that's
0: right. <laughs> Here in Melbourne, centre of the universe, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I want to start by talking about a, a great positive human rights story. Last week the Palaszczuk government in Queensland passed laws to enable the expunging or expungement of criminal convictions for consensual homosexual sex in that state. Paula, I know this is an issue that's close to your heart. You played a big role in getting the ball rolling on this in Victoria. Can you tell us a bit about it?
1: Yes, well, Australia decriminalised consensual same-sex sexual conduct. The last jurisdiction to do it was Tasmania in 1992. And so we still have a lot of men around who uh, have been carrying the burden of these convictions because Mm. at the time that they decriminalised, they didn't take that extra step and say, and we're going to wipe the this, this slate clean of all these convictions. So what you
2: you mean is, although the acts themselves are no longer criminal acts, the you know, the actions, but a person who was charged and convicted of one of the, those homosexual acts pre say, 92, is still carrying around a stale conviction?
1: Correct. and on their Well, it's and... not a stale conviction because it was a, a, a sexual offence and they don't become stale right. uh, after 10 years as, a, as some other convictions do. So if they apply for a working with children permit or to, to volunteer in an old person's home and they have to have a criminal check record check or some employment places mm-hmm. require a criminal record check, this would come up, mm-hmm. these offences from the 1980s. Yeah. And um, so I think it was very important to follow the lead of the UK and actually say these convictions were were wrong, we Mm. never should have criminalised same-sex sexual conduct and we are going to expunge them, we are going to remove them from your record, so Mm. they will never show up again. Victoria was the first state to do it, and that we've had it seen a domino um, effect since then. And uh, yes, as Maria said, Queensland did it last week, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. Uh, WA and the Northern Territory, the two jurisdictions that have yet to embark on the process, Um, WA is is going through uh, taking the steps to do Mm -hmm. that. Northern Territory says we've got some other. Um, LGBTI issues that we think are a higher priority really? than this. Um, and <laughs> maybe they can only deal with one thing at a time, Paula. Maybe it is a fairly small jurisdiction. Um, they want adoption uh, reform first mm-hmm. in, our, in consultations mm-hmm. with the LGBTI community there, so obviously we're going to uh, give voice to their priorities. So mm-hmm. um, hopefully the Northern Territory will follow mm-hmm. in, in due course, um, but they're in not South quite Australia? there. Yet. South Australia has done it. Great. Yep, Tasmania's in the process. New South Wales and ACT were very hot on the tail Mm. of Victoria, so I guess one is a model for, right? Exactly. Although you do need to tweak it because it does have to reflect what were the offences at that time, and to make sure because criminal law is a state thing that you have caught everything. Um, So uh, the Human Rights Law Centre, Anna Brown and Lee Carney have been doing an excellent job in um, really paying meticulous attention to their precise wording of of these bills to make sure that they do capture everything. Mm.
0: All right, next issue, uh, human rights issue of the week. Uh, Australia has been elected to the UN Human Rights Council for the first time in its history. What what even is that? (laughs) (laughs) To to really confuse things, Australia is also um, having its human rights record reviewed by the Human Rights Committee this week.
2: Okay, so there's a council and there's a committee and they're two different things. What's the difference between them?
0: So the council is a political body Uh, of 47 member states that are elected to three-year terms to serve on the council it becomes kind of it does a lot of different things but it becomes kind of like a peer review mechanism Mm. so it it deals with um, thematic issues like women's rights or children's rights it deals with problems that come up in certain countries like Syria Mm. or Burundi and um it, ha- it has a lot of what's called mandate holders or independent experts who report to them on right. certain thematic issues in countries, and it has something called the Universal Periodic Review. Every right. country gets reviewed yeah. by the Human Rights Council. And
2: we were reviewed last year, right? In uh, 2015. In 2015, yep. in that format. That's right. Now, to make it even more confusing, yep. Australia's now being reviewed, mm-hmm. like maybe tomorrow, yep. I think by the Human Rights Committee, which is a different body.
0: Completely different. And it's very confusing, thanks, UN, especially because... um, So this is an expert body, and there's a whole bunch of human rights treaties, and each of them has a treaty body that reviews countries' human rights records, amongst other things. So there's a a Convention on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, uh, and then a a committee for that, Yep. a Convention Against Torture, a committee for that, and so on. Then there is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Yep. That's our favourite. That is our favourite. (laughs) We're allowed to say that because all human rights are equal. No,
2: no, it's all good.
0: Yeah. They're all they're all level. All level. (laughs) (laughs) Not evil. (laughs) Okay. But um uh, the and this body uh, over the human rights committee oversees the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So it should be called the Civil and Political Rights Committee. Committee. Why it's called the Human Rights Committee, I don't really know. So it's an expert body, so independent experts yeah. who are going to review our human rights record. In 2015, we went before the council and were re- re- reviewed by our peers. Mm. And, and interestingly... And now
2: we're being reviewed by a panel of experts, experts who are appointed, not for their national affiliation, but because they're actual academic-style experts in the area of yep. the ICCPR rights. And they're going to look at Australia. Australia puts up a report and says, this is all the things we've achieved and here's some areas we've got some, some growth to do or mm. some improvements. Yep. Um, and some NGOs will participate and give a, a secondary report that kind of yep. gives a, their point of view on that, right?
0: Yeah, there are Australian uh, civil society over there in, uh, this week, which is great. Um, there's one really interesting thing. the the It will produce... A in quotes a better report because it's more thorough, mm-hmm. really, and it, it's, it focuses on all of the issues. The When you go before the Human Rights Council, it depends what the countries want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. and But interestingly, we had Hilary Charlesworth, a, a distinguished Australian academic, give our annual lecture this week, which you'll be able to find on YouTube, Caston Center YouTube. Go on YouTube. Um, in, probably next week. Um, and she mentioned that although the council process is a bit more haphazard, mm. uh, it, it holds more weight because um, countries can kind of brush off experts, mm-hmm. but they don't like being told that <laughs> their human rights record is patchy by their peers. Yes, and, except and
2: when they don't think that their peers are really their peers. So <laughs> if you're being told off by a country that you think has much worse human rights record than you, then mm. you kind of say, well, I'm not taking that from, That's from right. DR say Congo or yeah
0: or or North Korea yeah. you know uh it, it gets complex but the idea of peer review um, there there are con- pros and cons but but it it is the basis of the international system that countries come together mm. and so having countries come together as political bodies that are imperfect to discuss human rights actually does have a really yeah. uh, have some really positive effects to it The UN as a whole is complex. We're going to do a... um, Yeah, we need to spend spend more time on this. We're going to basically look at what is the UN in a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Small (laughs) task.
2: Yeah. It's kind of like, well, I know that. And they think, oh, actually, oh, my God, it's No, it's good. So, anyway, let me take you back. Mm. Um, Australia got elected to this position on the Human Rights Council. That means we beat... Did we beat the rest of the world? Who who did we beat?
0: So, (laughs) there's a regional allocation of seats. It's all about...
2: Sport, right? Who yeah, won? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's
0: right. Regional allocation of seats, and really weirdly, we're in a we're not in the Asian group or the Pacific group. We're no, in a group called. I
2: don't know what do we call Western
0: Europe and other.
2: No, weog. Called, we are. Yeah, yeah we are so the Western Europe
0: and others group. So um, we were, and they meant to have competitive elections so that countries, so the bad so, countries can be voted out.
2: So you mean that that competitive process will kind of distill the best.
0: Candidates, candidates right. out of
2: a particular group. So out of the, is there an you know, African and yep. the group, Asian group. Asian yep. group this
0: year, Asia was the only one that had a competitive process. So it, there were two Weog spots up for grabs, Australia, France, and Spain were in the running for them. And then when mm-hmm. Macron won the election, he was worried they might lose and decided to pull them out. Oh. So it ended up being Australia and Spain competing so, so for two spots. So we got elected, but
2: we only got elected to t- two candidates for two
0: spots. That's right.
2: So we're not actually such legends.
0: <laughs> no that's right and and it's it's really it, it's not a good look and it's something that the, the council has to crack down on so that Nations aren't just allocating spots without the competitive process. I want to move on to another issue, which is um, anti-abortion process, pr- protest zones. So last week, um, anti-abortion protester Kathleen Club was convicted of breaching Victoria's safe access zone legislation, which prohibits certain forms of behaviour within 150 metres of abortion providers. OK,
2: stop there for a second. Just explain, what, what is the behaviour that's... like. What is it that we're... What are anti-abortion um, protest zones?
0: So, um... The, 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 well, they were trying to address the fact that anti-abortion protesters would, would be would not only protest right outside abortion clinics, but often be quite um, vociferous. Yeah. Well, they were even to the extent of following people, trying to stop them when they were getting out of their cars, right. trying to block their access to the clinic. So clinics. you're talking
2: about pe- people actually physically hara- physically and verbally harassing people yes. trying to get into a clinic. Yes. At, at a very obviously very difficult.
0: That's right, and so just over so twelve then months there's, ago,
2: there's zones put around. Yeah, so you've got to stay clear of that yeah. close area.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. So there's a 150 metre zone which they, so you can still protest, but you can't go within that zone. Mm-hmm. And what what um, Kathleen Club did was call the police and say, "I'm going to go and breach the zone. I'm going to go inside the zone." Okay. And so so she did that to set up a test case to challenge the mm-hmm. law, and they wanted to really try and chip away at the law. Um, she was unsuccessful and was convicted in the magistrate's court mm. um, last week. And two of our um, uh, deputy directors, Tanya Penovich and, and Rolly Sifis, have been working on this issue, mm. were in court last week to witness, and there weren't any um, media in court. So they've actually... <laughs> they were it. That's right. They were the media, and they put up a great blog on our, on our site, castandcenter.com, mm. that's our blog page, mm. uh, describing what happened. And then there's also... They wrote a separate opinion piece that's appeared in the Guardian, and we've put up on our blog site as well mm. on so the, the the importance of the case. Um, I, they've done research that shows that this has incredible psychological effects on. You people. mean the interference with the, the interference? People yep. seeking health services. That's right. And has
2: effects on them.
0: Yeah, and it can be worse in small towns. Mm-hmm. Um, it it dampens um, people's willingness to access. Um, abortion and other services, mm-hmm. um, and their the research shows that these zones are working to combat those problems. Mm. Um, there is a one side issue, well, not side issue. One issue is, of course, if you're putting in place this zone, you're arguably restricting free speech mm. from a human rights point and, of view. And that was
2: kind of one of the arguments that was. was it in was here, that she made a case. Her political yep. communication. The
0: magistrate sort of said she didn't think that it was a breach of the constitutional right to imply yeah imply and I'd right
2: agree to... with that because she's still entitled to express her view just a little bit down the street Yep. so you're not stopped from political communication you're just limited in, in a particular geographic zone from political communication and there's been ca- older cases mm. that, that have dealt with sit- analogous situations
0: older constitutional cases yeah. dealing with this and t- t- just to clarify this, this co- implied right in the constitution to freedom of political communication
2: yeah which I've Blogged about
0: exit. Yeah. At length,
2: check it out on the Caston Center blog. Yeah, for sure. Um, so coming back then, I mean, what about just not political communication, but the idea of freedom of expression and, and free speech? You know, do these and mm. these access zones actually constrain people's free speech? Yeah.
0: I, from a human rights point of view, I think you'd say, well, yes, they do. But um, is it in
2: an impermissible way?
0: That's right. So in international human rights law you can um, restrict uh, most human rights, including the right to free speech, in certain situations. And so the argument is that that this is a restriction that is primarily to stop sort of harassment and intimidation mm. and that um, carves out enough space for y- um, you to express your views. And yeah. from 150 metres, you can still express them probably to the people walking into the clinic. Yes,
2: Mm, they you can them, yell at maybe.
0: them. Um, you can hold up signs. Y- yeah. So, I mean, if, if, if a court was to look at this, that's the question. it, it, it would almost certainly say, yes, this is a limitation on free speech, but is it, uh, is it a justifiable mm. one?
2: And it has to balance off against other per- the other person's right to privacy and mm. the right to access health care and the right to um, make choices about their reproductive health. So those are human rights too, and we this is a really... You know, difficult but obvious example of the collisions of different people's rights and trying to balance them off. Yeah. But, you know, I, I do feel that kind of attacking people as they're walking into a health clinic, not good.
0: No, <laughs> exactly. Um, all right, there are a couple of other things we'll run through really quickly because uh, we have, this is truly a bumper edition um, this week, in Victoria, here in Victoria, there has been explosive revelations, um, not only of sexual abuse, sexual harassment and bullying being rife in Victoria's fire services, but also that it has been covered up. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it feeds into a bigger fight that's been going on in Victoria mm. about fire services that we won't get into here, but it's a breaking story really over the last 24 hours um, it is shocking the, the alleged levels of, of sexual harassment and even sexual abuse, as well as bullying and intimidation in the fire services, and I think this is going to play out in a big way in Victorian politics in um, the days and weeks to come. Also, um, I want to uh, point out that the death toll in the Somalia terrorist attack is now above 300, making it one of the deadliest terrorist strikes in recent years anywhere in the glo- on, on the planet. Um, Al-Shabaab is a terrorist group basically based in Somalia. Has, uh, um, At the time of recording, hasn't claimed responsibility, but most experts think it was probably their work. Mm. Going back a few years, it controlled vast swaths of Somalia, including many towns, including, in fact, big parts of the capital Mogadishu mm. where this bomb attack went off. Um, since then, it's sort of been pushed back and it's more of an insurgency living in rural areas and, and launching terrorist attacks in, in Somalia and also in Kenya. Which was sort of a key player in forcing Shabab out of the towns and onto the back foot. Mm. It's a terrible attack on a country that's been, you know, has made considerable steps towards being a functioning, you know, having a functioning government and society after decades of being a failed state. Yeah, this a, frag- is,
2: a fragile state.
0: Oh, it's very fragile. It has massive challenges, and this is clearly a huge setback.
2: And the last one is a bit of breaking news that. It's that's happening while we're recording this podcast, and that is that Bob Brown won his High Court challenge to the Tasmanian anti-protest laws, also on a, a political speech argument. And um, he he was uh, arguing a case against Tasmanian anti-protest laws, uh, saying that they infringed his right of political communication. And the High Court has agreed that that, that part of the law is unconstitutional. We'll come back to that in another podcast, because... All I have is Twitter to tell me what's happened, and that's not enough for this purpose.
0: But you would have to say, uh, knowing some of the arguments that were running in that case, Melissa, you'd say um, it's a a great thing. There are a lot of concerns about Tasmania's anti-protest laws, and it's great that we've had a case run and be successful.
2: It's a really important case, and it will end up being a landmark case. It'll have a ripple effect on laws in other states that that apply similar types of restrictions on people protesting, particularly in environmental contexts.
0: Yep. Uh, the environmental terrorists uh, Oh yeah, yeah, in, those in, guys remember, in George Christensen's words.
2: Don't even say those words You <laughs> could be misquoted
0: <laughs> Now it's time for my favourite segment Where we name our human rights hero or villain of the week uh, I'm going to start with you Paula Who's your hero or villain?
1: Well, I've got one of each, Ooh, um, and nice. it's been hard to narrow it down to just one. My hero has to be the uh, Can, the International Campaign Against uh, Nuclear Weapons, which won the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> it started in Melbourne. The founders came from Preston, my old suburb, um, and I just think it's, it's wonderful that they're hard work in getting a treaty to ban nuclear weapons um, has been so successful, and they're well-deserving winners of of that prize. Um, Villains is uh, anonymous because nobody has actually put their hand up and claimed uh, responsibility for this, but as I mentioned a bit earlier in this segment, the big no that was written across the sky last week at lunchtime on Thursday and was seen by uh, children and the like, I think is an absolute... Uh, villain and to do uh, that sort of campaigning, I think is just sinking to a a, a new low, a level. new lower low, a lower low than we've actually already seen. So they're my heroes and villains.
2: Well, my heroes of the week are all the women who came together um, and came out, I guess, to reveal not only what Harvey Weinstein did to them, but actually all the women who came out on that hashtag that said Me Too. And talked about episodes of sexual harassment or abuse or or, um, attack, um, which has really changed the way people have understood, very quickly, this idea about sexual predators and the environment in certain industries, particularly, it started in Hollywood, but it's actually everywhere. Um, And I I just think it's been a really powerful, um, it's more than just social media, obviously, but the use of social media with, with this kind of opening up of what people have experienced and how widespread it is, it's, it's a really big thing.
0: My hero heroes of the week are activists like Anna Brown and Lee Carney at the Human Rights Law Centre, Rodney Croom, Ro Ellen, Felicity Marlow, Brenda Appleton, our own Paula Gerber, mm-hmm. and so many LGBTI activists who have fought in many cases for years to get us to the point where hopefully... Marriage equality is a reality within a short period of time here in Australia. And finally, it's time for Did You See That? where we all briefly mention one thing that caught our eye, human rights or otherwise, although I should say Paul has just had to step out. So it's just you and me, Melissa. Good. (laughs) I'll go first. Uh, Did you see that astronomers have observed for the first time two neutron stars colliding? Uh, And not only does this sound like a pretty awesome event to witness, but it also turns out that these collisions are the source of all the good elements, (laughs) gold... Platinum, the stuff you pile under your bed Make into nice baubles What goes uh, on
2: at your house?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you think I'm missing the point?
2: Yeah, maybe,
0: I don't know <laughs> The stars are apparently as big as a city But more dense than our sun And these two stars have been circling each other Closer and closer before finally colliding About 130 million years ago It's and
2: like a massive romance, really, isn't it? <laughs> I they end finally it ended badly got together Like so many romances up.
0: <laughs> but uh, uh, it does sound pretty awesome, and and the good folks who work in astronomy are literally crying um, with joy. At really, this, yeah, yeah, this very is a excited. big, big, super excited. big, mega deal.
2: Yeah. Uh, did you see that Nationals MP George Christensen wants coal mine protesters to be charged with terrorism offences? <laughs> he actually said in Parliament, "Not all terrorists strap explosives to themselves to prove their point," meaning that you know <laughs> people <laughs> leading <laughs> political protests might also be terrorists. <sighs> Um, it's easy to laugh at this, but actually I think we have to realise that this kind of, uh, excessive language that's constantly flung around by politicians is actually pretty damaging. So calling people's te- people terrorists, communists, fascists, all of this kind of, dis- that's not really helpful in trying to work out a, a good solution to whatever the issues is. And it does have a fracturing effect, I think, on society. It doesn't, not helping us come together and understand each other better, so I think idiotic comments like this uh, beneath a politician who sits in our national parliament and, and we expect better.
0: Yeah, and, and I think uh, it's easier to sometimes say that you know, it's worse now than it's ever been. But, but I think I'm really coming around to the point of view that there has just been a poisoning of the well in discourse in Western politics. Mm. And it's really dangerous when you have this kind of rubbish. All right, that's a wrap for us. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to rate the podcast and leave a comment as it helps others to find it and share it through your networks.
2: And be sure to listen to some of the other podcasts from the Monash Law Faculty, uh, especially Just Cases, where I'm the host and talk to a whole lot of other people about interesting stories that have emerged out of the legal process.
0: That is great. And we will uh, alert you some more in coming episodes. Today's podcast was edited by Theo Leo. Catch you next time.